How many of us have ever uttered the phrase, someday when I get that role, I'm going to do things different? Well, today's guest has had that exact thing happen as a CMO thinking one of these days, as I'm a CEO, I know how to do this better. And so we finally got that opportunity, moving from CMO into CEO, and he learned a valuable life lesson in the process. No, this is not an after-school special. This is what happens when your C-suite executive finally moves into the CEO corner office. What you don't know, what you're not prepared for, and how do you handle that transition? All today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have Blaine on. Blaine is one who has navigated from CMO into CEO and back to CMO all over again. He has had a fantastic career working at organizations like Selectica, working at Vantic, working at Mindjet. He's kind of been there, done it all, but his biggest trick has been moving seamlessly from CMO to CEO and back again, and all the things he's learned throughout that entire process. So sit back, listen, even if you're never going to be a CEO yourself, learn from the perspective of someone who's gone into that chair and now has the new profound respect for the role, for the opportunity, and what he's learned along the way. So Blaine, we're going to take it away. I am super excited to have Blaine on today. We are going to talk about CMOs. We're going to talk about CEOs. The word stupid might get brought up in there. I think suck. Suck is the word. Suck Suck is the word we're looking for. Either one of those. That might get brought up. We're going to talk about product marketing. There's just a ton of stuff to bring up today. So Blaine's already jumped in and he's eager to go. Blaine, why don't you go ahead and start off with the usual, who are you and why the heck are you here? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm here because I, you know, I love sharing some of my uh, probably a little bit too many years of experience, both on the CMO side and, and in other roles, including CEO. But I started my first software company when I was 14, spent every waking hour in front of a computer writing code as a teenager. And after doing that, I finally said, enough moved to the dark side, sales and marketing, and I've, I've been there ever since. So that's, that's probably the main reason I'm here. I love it. Okay, so one of, the, one of the things that's really great is, you know, I've had, I've had an investor turn CEO, and I've had a CEO turn investor, and I've had a CMO turn CEO, and a CEO turn CMO, and I've had a few people that have played these dual roles, and the thing that I always love when somebody has changed their POV from one position to another is the dramatic change that they go through in terms of understanding, respecting, admiring, and even walking a mile in that person's shoes. So I think this is an obvious one for us to start on. Let's start with this. You've played both CEO and CMO role. Walk us through just a little bit of the the journey and the litany between those two, like which ones you started with and how you move from one to the other, I think, so that history is important. And then let's talk a little bit about the perspective on the change that's happened from moving from one to the next. And I'll, I'll interject some things, but I want to go ahead and let you just start talking. 
Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, as, as I mentioned, after going through my entrepreneurial phase, I started what you might call more of a standard career in marketing, rising up from manager, director, you know, VP of marketing, and then finally CMO. And, uh, and then I began to also take on GM and product related roles. In fact, most of my CMO roles have also been the CPO, the chief product officer, and sometimes one or the other, but, but most often both. And because of that, I was, you know, I was given the opportunity about five years ago to become CEO of a public company, actually a NASDAQ listed public company called Selectica was since rebranded as determined and then since acquired. So they're not around anymore, but, uh, but they were obviously around when I became CEO. And I found the transition really interesting because what you learn as a, a CMO and really any kind of C-level executive is very different than what you need to know as a CEO. You know, and really to, to dive into that a little bit further, yeah. uh, I guess there are three probably key takeaways that I got from that experience. And one is how lonely it is at the top. You know, when you're, when you're a CMO or a CPO or really any other kind of C-level executive, there's always one person you can point to and say, hey, the reason this thing just <laughs> fucked up or, the, you know, the reason this, this plan isn't going or we're always changing our strategy, what the hell, there, you can point to somebody and say, well, it's that person's fault, right? right. And you can commiserate with the other C-level executives and the CRO and the CMO sit in a room and complain about the CEO, and it's, it's inevitable, right? It, 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 it always happens. When you're in that CEO role, there's, you know, there's nobody to blame, right? It's, it's on you. You're, you're the decider. <laughs> and so it, it really is. It was surprisingly uh, lonely there. And that, that was definitely one takeaway for, for a CMO going in, into, that, uh, into that role. Now, having said that, another surprising thing was, and it's almost, it's almost counterintuitive and almost the opposite of what I just said, but everybody has a boss, including the CEO. And of course, that's the board or, you know, or the ownership of the company, the board. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought when I became CEO, I was finally going to be liberated, you know, from this nitpicking <laughs> overseer trying to deter, you know, make all my decisions for me. And of course, everybody thinks they're a marketer, right? Right. And, and, uh, and, and so, and what I, what I discovered was, no, everybody has a boss, you know, even, even CEOs have a boss and you never totally escape that. So it's lonely and yet you still have a boss. So it's almost the worst of both worlds, you know, when, when you think about it. Wow. You paint a great picture for moving into the corner office. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And, and that's why, you know, I wrote a blog post a couple of years back. Actually, people can find it on, on LinkedIn called do CEOs really suck. And, and I wrote that after I ended my tenure as, as a CEO because it allowed me to reflect on the fact that when I was a CMO or a CPO or other, other you know, senior executive roles, my operating theory was, and I, I'm not, I say this only half tongue in cheek, <laughs> a significant percent of startup and tech company CEOs, in any case, that's primarily what I'm referring to here, but I think it's generalizable, are actually clinically insane. Okay. Like they've got a personality disorder or some kind of ego, egomania, you know, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to diagnose it specifically, but, but 
they, you know, they're, and, and it's not just my theory, like I've spoken to so many senior executives over time, the people who actually report to CEOs and they're all just, you know, head slapping amazed at some of these people who are, you know, in the CEO role. And I, and I, I thought, what are the elements of that insanity? Like one thing is oversized ego, right? You know, CEOs in general have huge egos. And I know, you know, good to great and some of the, some of the leadership books have said the mark of a good CEO is, is very, uh, very subdued ego. Well, I've rarely been exposed to those people. I'm sure they exist, but I've rarely seen them. Perhaps, you know, you've, you've had the very humble CEO you've worked for in your career. Todd, I, you know, I have. So. No, I have yet. To, I have yet to run into humble CEO. I think those two things are, are conflicting interests. Right, right, right. The second thing that you know that is part of this in, insanity is the reality distortion field. Right, it's the Steve Jobsian reality distortion field where what happens in the real world is actually sort of irrelevant because you've got your own view of of the real world, and that's the world you're going to live in, and that's the world you're going to you're going to act in and operate in, which of course is you would think is also a sign of insanity, like you know schizophrenia. You're inventing a, a world that doesn't even exist, and it surrounds you, and you live inside it. And then the last thing that drives, you know, CMO is crazy and drove me crazy throughout my career is that it seems like CEO decisions are primarily made on gut feel. And again, there are exceptions. There are companies that are extremely data driven and you see some of these in tech, but, but by and large, CEOs are making lots of very important decisions today and it, they don't seem to be based on anything you know, which is really annoying and, and sometimes scary. And so you've got an egotistical, you know, maniac with a huge reality distortion field who's just making decisions based on gut left, right, and center. Uh, you, you can see why that it's very frustrating to CMOs and frankly to most people on, on the CEO's team. And I said to myself after, you know, when I was CEO, was I that way? Did I become one of those people? And, you know, on deep reflection, I said, I actually sort of did hmm. become one of those people. And, and I said, I, I had to think, well, why? Like, why does this happen? What is the, what is, there must be a, a, uh, a not genetically, but a, you know, a, a somehow predetermined reason for, for why evolutionary, I think is what I was going for. There must be something that drives the evolution of people into the CEO role that, 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 you know, forces them to be like this. And in my self-reflection, I think what I come up with is, look, the oversized ego is true, but as a CEO, you need, you need the self-confidence, you know, to be able to hold up to the incredible pressure. Like I said, back at the beginning, there's no other C-level role that has the pressure of a CEO. None, not the VP of sales, nobody. And you do not know that until you're in that role. And so the ego is, is you know, a force field to keep you together under that, you know, incredible pressure that CEOs face. And then on, on the distortion field, you know, again, CEOs, they live in a world of constant naysayers, obstacles, plans that go awry. It's like Mike Tyson said, every plan lasts, lasts until you get a punch in the face, right? And CEOs are getting punched <laughs> in the face every minute, every hour, every day. 
and and you have to construct a world in which you are certain you are going to win because if you don't have that level of certainty then there's no way you can face the never-ending stream of obstacles and and naysayers and and deterrence to your success truly it's it's impossible and then the final thing about this, you know, decisions that seem to be made on gut feel, what I came to realize, and it's especially true for founder CEOs, but, but I think hopefully it's true for most CEOs, is it's, it might seem like they're making decisions based on gut, and, and, but what, it, what that gut is based on is a very, very deep understanding of the market, of customers, of the product, especially if they're a founder CEO and were involved in the initial creation of, of the solution. They've got that deep level of innate knowledge that the average hired gun they bring in, a CMO or anybody else just does not have. And, you know, I, I look back at, at decisions that my previous CEOs have made that I thought were insane. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> you know what, in hindsight, that was actually absolutely the right thing to do. And they must have had something there because it wasn't based on research. It wasn't based on a lot of deep analytics and offsite meetings. It was based on gut, but that gut was trained through a deep knowledge and, and experience. And so, you know, at the end, I think, yeah, most CEOs are insane. And I probably became a little bit insane too, but, but you have to be, and it's actually, it's, it's actually, you know, for the most, in most, in many cases causes a good outcome you know, causes the desired outcome, right? Not always, but in, in, in many cases, it's actually necessary for business success. So well, what do you think? What do you think of that theory, Todd? Yeah, no. So, so it, here's what was interesting was there was, there was moments there of resisting wanting to jump in because this was so good and I wanted to give <laughs> the room to be able to talk and breathe and explain all of this. So here's, here's some of the questions and observations. You know, I am confident that there's somebody listening to this and they're like, yeah, I get all of that, but my CEO was X, Y, and Z. Like they were, they were super crazy or they didn't make good gut level decisions. And I'm sure there's exceptions to every rule, just like there are probably some CEOs that don't fall into the model that you've just described and do a perfectly fine job. But I loved how you walked through this sort of the tenets of what a CEO is and what they go through and even had the reflection to be able to look at yourself and say, yeah, actually, once I got into that seat, those things started to happen to me. And there's a natural reason and a recourse as to why. Right, right, right. Well, I think any of these traits, the ego, the distortion field and, and the gut feel thing, they can be taken to extremes, right? And when taken too far to the right of the continuum, you know, then then it's going to become uh problematic and destructive. So I'm not saying the ultimate CEO is, is totally, you know, over the edge on all of these things, but I have observed that many CEOs certainly have, have those characteristics more pronounced than the average executive by far. And, and as I said, you know, I think to some degree they are necessary. They're, they're created, they're adapted to for a reason, but anything taken too far can, can have a destructive effect. Absolutely. Well, and I've even uh, personally worked for and in the reviews and interviews of, of the book beyond product and getting people on board for this idea of helping founders be better founders. I talked to or worked with or interacted with a bunch of CEO founders that had 
outlive their usefulness in the organization. And so it also brings up this point of timing that you need a certain type of person, a certain archetype at certain times. And those people, just like going to extremes in their points of view, can outlive their usefulness. That that person who is that big disruptor at those early stages um, oftentimes isn't the person you need when that company goes IPO and goes public and becomes a large enterprise. You need a different type of hand at the wheel than you did at those early days when you were just trying to be that upstart of the marketplace. And there are, of course, exceptions. But for the most part, I think there's a life cycle that happens with this as well that needs to be factored in. Yeah, it's a controversial topic that, you know, there are certainly uh, different points of view on that. Certainly what you're saying is the sort of the accepted wisdom as companies go through their different stages from startup to to midsize to very large organizations. It's a different kind of CEO that you need. The, The counter view, which has become somewhat, I think, popular in tech circles is you can never beat the founder the founder mentality, and it relates to my third point about gut feel, right? There's probably nobody that has a better gut feel for how the market's going to evolve, what the product market fit is, than than the people who are there early on. And yes, you can, and to fix the fact that they couldn't operate their way out of a paper bag, well, you surround them with other people that can operate their, you know, our operators and do have big company experience and then that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for, for both views, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the interesting thing though, or a more interesting thing is to think about if, for our CEO listeners, what, what does, if, if that's the way the world is perceiving them or their CMOs and their executive team is perceiving them and trust me, they are in, in many cases, what can you do about it? Right. What, what can you do and, and what should you do about it? And I think there are some things you could do. Okay. So this is good because you're actually asking my questions for me. So <laughs> this will be, this will be a first on the podcast. It's, I don't actually have to say anything. You can just interview yourself and I'll just sit back and get a latte. This will be, this will oh, be God. great. No, yeah. I, all joking aside. So that is one of the things that if we're thinking of, and I want to do this for both, right? Um, do this for the CEO listener and for the CMO listener. So help, help us bridge the gap, right? This is what the podcast is for, bridging the gap between the C-suite roles and helping them find, uh, I mean, I sound very West Coast here, but find empathy and understanding yeah. for what the other person is yeah. going through and help to bridge some of those perception gaps that are happening, uh, you know, companies around the world. Right, right. Well, and and I do apologize, Todd, for asking my own questions. You know, it's one of the uh, annoying characteristics that I'm really good at answering the questions I ask myself. You know, you're fantastic are, at it. Yeah, my bosses uh, tell me that all the time. Blaine, you're incredible at answering your own questions. But uh, but I think you said it a minute ago. Empathy comes from understanding. So from the CMO side, you know, understanding some of the stuff we were just talking about you know, helps build that empathy. And, you know, one of the main things I've, I've tried to build in myself is not to, is to fight, resist the immediate urge to come to the conclusion that what that person, that CEO is saying is, is crazy. It's ill conceived. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the right decision. I, I found I have to take a beat sometimes and maybe a beat might be an hour or a day, you know, come back to it and, and try to think, what, what's really behind this is could there be something here that I'm just not seeing? And I shock myself how often that is the case. 
something that I thought was just absolutely not the way to go, not the way to do it. I, I know best. And a day later or a few days later, I look back on it and I think, wow, you know, there, there really was, was something there. And I think I'm a pretty sharp guy. I think I have a pretty good idea of what, of what the right thing to do is in many scenarios. I've been around the block a few times like you have. And, uh, and yet, you know, there's, there's always, there's often something there. So I think understanding and patience is, is critical on that. But the flip side that, that, that I asked and then you asked to uh, re-asked <laughs> is, is, you know, what, what about when you're a CEO? Like, what can you do or, you know, you, what can you do about this so that you can take advantage of these characteristics when, to, the, uh, to the effect that they're healthy, but, but then not let it become, a, you know, a big demotivation for your team? Because, of course, no well-functioning executive team dynamic should have uh, people doubting, uh, you know, <laughs> the sanity of, of the leaders or other team members that's right. not the, not an effective, efficient team organization and, and structure. Right. So, you know, one thing is, I think it is very hard for CEOs to sublimate their egos and, and they shouldn't, but at the same time, you know, allow your CMO and your other executives, but we're mostly talking about CMOs here, you know, they have egos too, Right. Like, even though they may be compensated well, they may have, you know, a good stock option plan, whatever it is, I find CEOs don't often say, just great job. Just great job, Todd. You know, you, you really rocked it. And it's, it's, those kind of, it's those kind of small things which can, you know, allow, you know, I've also got a big ego. And I like being told what a great guy I am and, and what a good <laughs> job I'm doing. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I think, uh, that's something that can help maybe balance out the CEO. I'm not, I'm not going to CEO's ego. I'm not going to mind so much if she's, you know, got a big ego, if I get to have a little bit of one too. Right. Right. You know, it, it sort of works in both directions. So that's one thing, scratch their itches. I would say scratch the itches, whatever, whatever motivates them. And for a lot of people, of course, it's all the baseline stuff, but then it's, it's the, it's the higher level stuff, the, the thank yous and the, and the great jobs. Everybody needs that. Doesn't matter what your fancy title is, right. Or how successful you've been in your life. One of the things I love about being on C-Suite Radio is our sponsors. That's right, our sponsors, the people that make this show happen. They invest their time, effort, and energy because they believe in us and we in turn believe in them. So I'd appreciate if you'd listen to one of them now. Thanks for taking a listen. I really appreciate you hearing what our sponsors have to say. They are the lifeblood of this organization. They make this thing work. And now let's get back to Blaine. Well, it's, it's funny how much of this comes back to the things you should have learned in kindergarten, right? <laughs> and, and to a large yes. degree, the, you know, the, the basics, the please and thank yous and great jobs and the attaboys and the gold stars and, you know, those, those types of things go a really long way. And one of the common themes that I heard was not so much by intention, but almost almost like this feeling of, well, we've graduated to the, the big person's table. We're now the leaders. And so a lot of those um, common niceties go out the window. That, yeah. that was something to do when you, were, when you were regular folks. But now that you've got the C in front of your title, 
you don't need to do that anymore. And, and I think what you're describing is actually the antithesis that be aware and be cognizant of what the impact of that can have and how, how motivating that can be for, for both of those roles and be able to bridge a gap between the two of them. Yep. Yep. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Another one, this is going to be a little bit more complex concept. Definitely not something we would have learned in kindergarten. I think, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's really important is, you know, these crazy CEOs with all their visionary ideas are off, often put the CMO in the role of being Mr. No. Can't do that, can't afford that, impossible, not enough time, on and on and on, right? Hmm. No, no CMO wants to be, you know, Mr. No. They took the job. They're marketing people because they're creative, they're innovative, they want to do things, they want to, they want to you know, tackle interesting projects and get things done. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the lesson there for the CEO is to be, you know, to, of course, be the visionary, be the idea person, come up with things, but also be the listener, be open to the ideas, to the projects, to the things that can happen so that your, your executive team and especially your CMO, that's often the one who has to execute against these crazy go-to-market ideas, isn't always in the position of saying why they can't do it. You know, mm. now the, the flip side of that is if your CMO is saying, if they're a yes person, if they're saying yes, yes, yes to everything, then do a deep analysis of whether they're actually doing any of these things. Okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> because it's very easy to be a yes person. And then the CEO just assumes that, oh, well, yes, that project's happening. This initiative's happening. We just opened, uh, you know, a, a sales and marketing office in Antarctica. It's all good. <laughs> And then, you know, and then they, and then, you know, they don't follow up and, and check. And, and if they did, they discover if, if the C, if the CMO is saying yes, 95% of the time, it's probably not mostly happening. The, the CMO just doesn't want to say no. Right. So. Yeah. I like the, uh, I like the Antarctic uh, sales and marketing uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, organization. I think that's, that's super clever. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, was you're, asked, I was asked to do that once. <laughs> I won't name the company. I won't name the company. You're um, you're spot on correct though about this idea of uh, you know evaluating and validating some of the work that's being done because again I've seen and I've worked for and, and under some of those people that just said yes to everything and things were never really activated. They weren't executed. They there was a lot of lip service, but nothing was actually getting done, and it all seemed very smoke and mirrors and. As a, as a marketer, I, I frankly take umbrage to that because I think there's a huge disconnect between the other executives and the marketing organization and often believing that marketing doesn't really add the value that it, it should be given credit for. And so this is a little bit of standing up for my marketing peeps. When I see that behavior of people aren't actually actioning the work that they're supposed to do, I, I get kind of mad because marketers do a really amazing job day in and day out to help drive revenue and grow the business. And when somebody is a bad actor, or a bad player, I think it just damages the reputation of marketers as a whole. And that's something I, I try and combat on an almost daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, CEOs have experienced that over the years, the average tenure of what a CMO is what now around two years, give or take right yeah, now. Right. And so the average CEO has been through many CMOs and they've seen, you know, they've seen all, all types and it hasn't always been good. Right. 
uh, to some degree, it's it's the Peter principle where people make it up to that level and and uh, you know they might not be ready for it. And of course, but of course, CEOs get there too for those reasons. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know. Okay. So so we did we did a lot here on sort of bridging the gap between the CEO and the CMO. Oh, can I can I give you Please. one more one yeah, more? Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Let's just give me let share me some wisdom, brother. Because these, because uh, I think this is probably the most important one. I think for a CEO to think about when she or he is, is you know, trying to work with a CMO, recognize and I've seen this fail so often. It's it's scary. Recognize truly that the CMO is for the is mo- in most cases. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Is an expert in their domain. Right? They became a CMO because they actually are an expert in marketing. Right. And hopefully in marketing in the, you know, in the industry and in the type of solutions that you're selling or why did you hire them in the first place. Right. And as you know, the challenge is everybody thinks they're a marketer. Yeah. Right. And including the CEO, you know, and the CEO probably does have back to gut feel a really good gut instinct for what the market needs for product market fit for positioning. All that's very valid. But the CEO, unless she or he was a former CMO, probably didn't come up steeped in all the practices and heuristics and, and everything in, in, in terms of what being a true professional marketer is. And it's so easy for CEOs to fall into the trap of thinking, well, everybody's, everybody's a marketer. I'm, a, I'm an expert marketer. and I've just hired a CMO who's, you know, that person's role is primarily just to execute marketing, cam- you know, marketing campaigns or programs like a glorified C-level project manager. Yeah. But not really recognizing the expertise. And so I think the way a CEO can, can reflect that in the real world is by giving as much autonomy to the CMO as they can muster, right? We've seen so many studies about how, you know, autonomy is really one of the key determinants in job satisfaction. It's about focusing on the, you know, the why. The CEO can focus on the why, but, but not so, but try to resist the temptation to dictate the hows, you know, to the CMO. And I think that would go a long way to helping this relationship between the CEO and the CMO, recognizing that there actually is domain expertise in being a marketer. Not everybody in the company is an expert marketer. You hired the CMO to be that person. So this is really interesting. I want to, I want to scratch into this one a little bit because it's going to harken back to something you, you mentioned early on. And, and this is about the domain expertise, the, the, the gut level expertise of the CEO. So now you've got this CMO who has marketing expertise. You have this uh, CEO who has market expertise. Mm. How do you get the two of them to work together? Because the pairing of those two, I mean, that's, that's peanut butter and jelly, right? Or whatever your particular jam is like those, those two things go really great together when you compare the expert marketer with someone who knows the market and the customer better than anybody, those things work great, but it seldom happens. So how do, how do those two egos, personalities, those roles, how do they actually accomplish that? Well, if I knew the answer to that, do you think I'd have a new job every two years? <laughs> God, you know, that's awesome. No, no. I, you know, I think, well, obviously some of the stuff we've been talking about is related to solving yeah. that, but I, I, this is a very complex 
question you've you've posed, and obviously there is no easy answer. But I can think of a you know a sort of certainly one interesting idea that I've adopted over over the years, and I actually learned from a mentor of mine about a decade ago and began to use it to very great effect. And that's every once in a while, particularly if there are very complex or challenging issues or controversial decisions or issues to address. Uh, the CEO and I have a little sort of a game we play where we say, let's go in the bear cave. And mm. what the bear cave is, it, it, it's not really a place. It's a, it's a mental place we go to where there are no titles. There are no levels. There's no bad ideas. Anybody can say anything. And what, what happens in the bear cave and what's said in the bear cave stays in the bear cave. And just by setting the mental construct as being, hey, we're not in our regular CEO-CMO relationship with the, with the way we, you know, the CMOs jockeying for power and budget and, and credibility and authority and the CEOs trying to prove how smart he is. And, and you just put all that bullshit aside, get in the bear cave and have a real frank discussion about this challenging go-to-market issue or whatever it is you're trying to solve. And I find it only works one-on-one. Doesn't you can't put the whole executive team in the bear cave. It just doesn't doesn't work. You never you know too many bears, right? <laughs> right. And uh, and I found it actually works. It's worked wonders over the years to enable really frank, honest, no non-threatening conversations between a CEO and a CMO. Like you know, like like just for whatever reason, for all the reasons we've been discussing just don't seem possible in the regular course of business. And so now one of us, I'm, I'm now CMO and I'm at this incredible company called Vantic. We're an application development platform for the next generation of applications, but truly the best company I've ever worked for. And sorry, Adobe and, you know, a bunch of, bunch of great companies back there. Uh, Vantic is incredible. And, you know, the CEO, Marty Sprinson, and I go into the Bear Cave probably twice a week, at least once a week. Either he will say or I will say, Blaine, let's go in the bear cave. And we just, wherever we are, we go in the virtual bear cave. It could even be on the <laughs> phone. It doesn't even have to be in person. About probably a quarter of the time, this is a phone call, actually. But it changes the mental model and allows us to work at a, in a way which is just not, not normally possible. So I definitely recommend bear caves. That's one idea. Well, the, the one thing I was going to uh, kind of go into here and you, you sort of answered it was, you know, you said you were doing this once or twice a week is can you, can you bear cave too often where it sort of loses its impact, but it sounds like you're doing it on a pretty regular cadence and you're able to separate yourself and go into this sort of virtual role between the, the two of you. Well, yeah, good observation. I think I didn't give enough context. Vantic is a small startup, 60-person company, uh, by far the smallest company I've worked for in in decades, actually, literally decades. And so I went back to my roots with a very small startup, very small team. This company is very agile. The market is new. It's changing all the time. We have to be in the bear cave once or twice a week because the speed of change is just you know, is just overwhelming yeah. in, in this environment that we're in. I think in more mature markets, more mature organizations, I don't think probably it would have to happen once or twice a week. It could be used on a, I, I, the mentor who taught me this methodology was actually a C-level executive at, at one of the 
top 10 largest companies in Europe. And I think he went into the bear cave with his uh, very, very well-known boss maybe once a month is when they did the bear cave. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, my situation is a little unique because of the nature of the business I'm in. And, you know, I think there's, there's natural limits to anything, but it sounds like you can have a pretty in-depth, direct, even frank conversation with the other executive and really sort of lay cards on the table when you, when you both agree that this model is the thing that you're going to do and that this is what's going to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it also strikes me, and I'm sure organizational theorists and, and others will say, Blaine, this, this whole thing is totally wrong. You should be able to have this kind of discussion all the time hmm. in a high-performing executive team. But I don't know, I, I keep searching for that you know, that nirvana, I, I haven't found it yet. And this is not a, it's not a criticism of anybody on my team here or any other team I've been on any more than it's a criticism of me, right? It's just when you're, when you're operating in a business environment, there are all these pressures and factors and everybody thinks that they are doing the right thing to move the business ahead. And everybody else is not doing, if, if only they were doing what I wanted them to do, <laughs> this business would be really moving, right? Yeah. And, and you have to get out of that. You have to literally try to get out of that mindset and, and work in, in a different mindset every once in a while and to, to be effective. It's, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm sure, some, I'm sure there are some just high-performing uh, you know, teams out there that are like Patrick Lencioni's, you know, book, uh, book series on high-performing teams. I'm sure those teams exist out there. I haven't had the pleasure of, of running into one yet, but like I said, through some of what we've been talking about, I've learned to accommodate for that and to help us create, you know, overall high-performing organizations. Yeah, I think those I think those high performing teams and the ability to have those conversations are pretty rare and pretty few and far between. Mm-hmm. And look, you're you're right. A theorist may look at this and say, "Hey, it should be like this all the time, anywhere." And I would make the argument: in theory, communism should work because everyone should be able to share resources. It just in practice hasn't always worked out so well. So yep. you know, a lot of these things are great in theory, but when it comes down to Hey, the interpersonal dynamics between people and the egos and the the subconscious, unconscious stuff that comes yep. into it, the ability to have this place where you're coming in and saying, okay, look, for the next X couple of minutes and while we're in the cave, um, we're taking our armor off and we're having this really direct conversation and the purpose is for the betterment of the business and that gives you common purpose and common direction and you can have a direct conversation, but it's not it doesn't feel like it's necessarily you versus them. It's the two of you versus the problem. And you're trying to find your way to solve that. And that I think is really powerful. That's right. And in fact, I feel like we've been in the cave for the last uh, 30 or 40 minutes. It's I've bared my soul on a lot of these things. I hope none of my executive team actually listens to this interview. because <laughs> they'll, they'll know what's, what's really going on in my mind. You know, it's, well, this is, I'm sorry, but this is going to be the name of the podcast. It's going to be, it's going to be bear caves with Blaine is, is, is basically what's going to, or we'll just call it the Blaine cave and, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll coin it trademark it and, and uh, we'll, we'll make it a, you know, a best, a best selling series. There you go. There you go. Um, but yeah, that's, that'll be the name of my book. Yeah. There we go. The Blaine cave. I like that. Yeah. The Blaine cave. Hey, see. All right. So I just, I only want partial credit for that. There you, uh, go. you got it. Okay. So we do have to wrap up here in a second because this has been a very engaged discussion and, and we've, 
we've really scratched into just this one area of the CEO CMO dynamic. But I got to be honest with you, this is one of the the better conversations I've had around this topic because it's such a hot button issue. It's so challenging for these two roles in particular. And this isn't to say that the CFO and the CMO or CEO don't have problems or the COO and CEO. I mean, I think everyone has their own dynamic issue with, with the leadership, but in particular, because everybody does believe they're a marketer. Not everybody believes they're a financier. Everyone believes they're a marketer that it adds a layer of complexity to the roles and makes it doubly challenging for these two groups to come together. So having someone who's walked between kind of move from one to the other and move back again to say that they've done those roles is, is really uh, uh, rare. And so the fact that we had this opportunity to sit down and dive deep into this is just such a special treat. And I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, you joked about it, but really bearing your soul on, on how this is and how this works and what this looks like and the experiences you have. It's been such a great conversation. So with that, I want to give you the opportunity. Was there anything that we missed? Anything you want to add on to this? Or is this a good place for us to wrap up? No, I think, Todd, you gave a great summary. Thank you so much for that. A, a great opportunity to speak to you. And, and literally, it is true. I feel like I've been on the uh, psychologist couch for the last 40 minutes. So <laughs> I'm going to go have a glass of wine right now and, and decompress. But, but uh, really, really great talking to you. Appreciate it. That's, uh, that's, that's perfect. I charge three fifty an hour and I will take insurance. So we'll work on your uh, forms after, after we wrap up the call. So Blaine, thank you so much for, for hopping on today. It was such an enjoyable conversation. Um, give it one more shout out to the company that you're with right now. It's Vantic, V-A-N-T-I-Q. Go check it out. It's pretty cool. All right, we will. And I will encourage people to do so when we promote this on social media. So Blaine, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for jumping on. And we'll look forward to our next conversation. You bet. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for listening today. I'm really excited that we had Blaine on. I love his perspective on the C-level executives suffer from this idea of loneliness, that you're in a position that you don't have anyone else to point to. As a CMO, you can always point to the CEO and go, but as a CEO, there's really no one to point to. The buck literally stops there. And that creates an opportunity for loneliness that doesn't exist in the other roles. And that pressure that comes in from being a CMO or CEO, sorry, that you don't know until you're actually in that role. And I love his perspective on this and his ideas around empathy and this idea around having a founder's mentality and what that really means in your organizations. If you'd like to follow Blaine, and I strongly suggest you do, you can find him on LinkedIn, pretty simple. You can also find him on his website, and that's vantic.com, V-A-N-T-I-Q.com about. You can also find him on Twitter, and that's B-L-A-I-N-E, M-A-T-H-I-E-U. For us, we hope you continue to listen to the podcast as we navigate our conversations with CMOs and approach our conversations directly with CEOs over the coming weeks. Thanks again for taking a listen. Hope you're having a great week and we'll see you next one. You've been listening to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. 
For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.